Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Insero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. This month, the PwC Health Research Institute released its annual medical cost trend report for 2022, and reflecting the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, the report predicts a 6.5% medical cost trend in 2022, slightly lower than the 7% medical cost trend in 2021, and slightly higher than it was between 2016 and 2020. On today's Managed Carecast, we speak with Trina Suderos, who leads HRI and is an author of the report. We discuss some of the drivers behind those numbers, as patients who put off care begin to return, as workers carry a high burden of mental and emotional stress, and as healthcare systems invest as they plan ahead for the next crisis. So welcome to the podcast, Trina. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do at PwC? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm Trina Sideros, and I lead uh, PwC's healthcare think tank, Health Research Institute. And I've been doing that for about eight years. I've led our regulatory center, and now I'm I'm leading the team. So that's my job at PwC. Basically, we do um, forward-looking thought leadership and research for the firm and for clients and for um, external readers as well, you know, journalists, policymakers, um, you know, folks like that. There's been a lot of discussion and probably even just outright worry and concern about the impacts on population health as a result of the pandemic. And in your annual medical cost trend report, which the organization's been putting out now for a pretty long time, right? Over 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think this is our 16th year. So a long, a long time. Got it. The organization is projecting a six and a half increase for 2022, slightly lower than 7% this year. Um, It got a lot of attention. Can you talk a little bit about some of the drivers of that, such as delayed care? Yeah, yeah. Just like you said, you know, I think we're all experiencing or continuing to experience the um, persistent effects of the pandemic. And I, I think likely we will see that for years to come, um, even as we all um, begin to feel that life is is heading towards something like normal. And so some of the drivers, a lot of the drivers, um, both inflating medical cost trend and also deflating it, have to do or tie back to the COVID-19 pandemic. And deferred care is one of those examples where we saw very clearly in 2020, in the spring of 2020, the lockdowns happening, folks did not go to the doctor, to the hospital, unless it was for something um, that was truly emergent, um, something truly that could not be put off. And because of that, we had a lot of uh, care that was deferred. And then it continued to be deferred even as hospitals began to open up because people were um, sort of worried about going back to the hospital. And so we are experiencing now through 2021 and into 2022, the continued impacts of that deferred care. Some of that is in the form of costs that 
um, that will come from people who have more severe illness because that care was deferred. Some of it is just a piling up of, of care that should have happened in 2020, 2021, that's gonna happen in 2022. So those maybe those dental visits that folks decided not to do, um, you know, have put off, we're seeing that. And then we have um, also the effects of, of the mental health um, tidal wave that we're seeing where the, the mental health effects of the pandemic um, you know, are being felt in um, emergency rooms, in um, inpatient units, um, psychiatric units and hospitals all across the country, um, the, the telephone lines of, um, of therapists of all levels ringing off the hook, folks really, um, uh, you know, seeing that the demand for, for mental health services um, increase greatly uh, due to the pandemic and, the, and the, the effects of that. So, so that, that is another kind of piece of this is the effect of, of folks' lives really being turned upside down in many ways um, through the pandemic and just all the effects of that, even things like um, you know, lack of exercise. Um, you know, you know, we, there's a lot of been a lot of talk about weight gain during the pandemic. All of those effects, um, you know, will be eventually kind of wash out in in medical cost trend and in the healthcare system, seeing kind of an increase in in the need for um, services to ameliorate those those issues. You sort of jumped ahead and must have realized through osmosis <laughs> what some of my questions were, but. Um, so I don't think you reported justice outright, but what will the collective impact of these physical and mental stressors be on the workforce, not just the workforce in general, but your report noted the healthcare workforce, um, doctors and nurses have had that increase in unhealthy behaviors as have some of the rest of us, not eating right, not getting enough sleep, maybe engaging in substance use collectively on the workforce as a whole. What do you think we're facing? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we've found is that in our report from our research is that there is, uh, you know, as a whole, a lot, like you said, a lot of of behaviors that that you know are tied to poor outcomes in health. So, like you said, you know, lack of exercise, loneliness, um, you know, eating eating not as as healthily as one could. And these kinds of things, and the workforce. I think what we'll see, or what our research is pointing toward, is is like I said, more demand for mental health services. And I think employers, pre-pandemic, were beginning to realize the importance of addressing this in through benefits with their employees, um, and also working kind of through. Uh, internal communications to to erase the stigma around mental health conditions. So this was happening before the pandemic, which is a, which is a good thing because the pandemic really um, you know has has raised the demand and need for these kinds of services. So workforce wise, employers understanding this and then the need um, really ramping up because of the pandemic. I think we're going to see more of that. We might see more wellness. Uh, programs out of employers trying to address some of these behaviors that folks have have developed. The working from home alone, you know, has really kind of changed people's patterns in terms of how much do they sit around, how much do they eat, when do they eat, those kinds of things. So we might see the the employer employer efforts around that to try to help uh, employees who are working remotely you know, instill in them some of those or help them uh, achieve some of those healthy behaviors that way too. And then from the healthcare workforce side of things, you know, th there's a real added element of the 
incredible stress that many healthcare workers have felt during the pandemic, treating so many COVID patients, seeing a lot of folks die, seeing a lot of people die alone, you know, without their family around. And so we see even in um, the American Rescue Plan Act, the recent uh, legislation around COVID, uh, some money around federal money, helping providers address those mental health needs of their own um, healthcare workforce. And that I think we will, it'll be curious to see, you know, how that gets implemented and, and how effective that is, because this is definitely a need within our own, you know, sort of healthcare workforce. I think we've heard anecdotally a lot of that, and also a lot of surveys have come out of healthcare workers showing, um, you know, high levels of mental health distress around, around them. And so, that money plus efforts around that that healthcare providers are 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 putting into place to try to address that will um, certainly will will be watching over the next couple of years. So, um, so yeah, I think this is another kind of a, a long tail of the pandemic. Long after, you know, we all um, sort of put away our masks and and go back to something like normal. Um, we will see. It would likely we'll see. At least our research is showing that we'll see this long tail for a while. How do you think payers and providers will respond as well? Well, I think in a couple of different ways, you know, I think one thing that we'll be watching at HRI is from the provider standpoint is how will they uh, absorb the demand for mental health services? So there's not necessarily a huge supply everywhere of the therapists that are needed, the inpatient beds. I think there have been media reports recently pointing to um, children's hospitals having a hard time placing children who come in to their EDs with a lot of mental health distress, placing them in those inpatient beds, finding a space for them. And so we will see, I think, some thinking around how do we how do we absorb all this demand and meet that demand in the coming years, you can't immediately create a, a huge scaled up workforce of um, trained providers of trained therapists overnight. It takes a lot of time. And so how can we use technology? How can we use, um, you know, sort of better, um, more efficient ways of delivering that care? You know, we'll see, we're going to see, I think, a lot of thinking around that likely in the coming years. From the payer perspective, I think we have already seen an expansion in in sort of mental health benefits and trying to figure out, especially driven by employers wanting that for their workforce. And so we might see more creative thinking around using technology, using, um, you know, sort of apps that are meant to take some of those more minor uh, mental health conditions and help people who might not have very severe issues, help them sort of alleviate stress to prevent, you know, sort of things from getting worse for those folks. And so that might take some of the pressure off of um, supply of, of providers. So we'll see some thinking around that most likely. That's Those are some of the things we'll be watching from HRI's point of view, um, especially in this mental health arena, where you have this you know, incredible situation of this massive expansion and demand for these services, but not necessarily um, clearly the supply, at least the way it's set up right now, available. And so what kind of creative ways, that's what we'll be looking at. And even before the pandemic, rural areas, not uncommon for Mm -hmm. counties to not have anyone in place from what I understand. 
Yes, yes, right, exactly. And maybe not the the specialists that you might need. You know, I think one of the areas that is um, there's a real need for is pediatric therapists, pediatric psychiatrists, especially in these rural areas. Um, you know, if you don't have have enough, uh, how can you use telehealth maybe to take metropolitan areas where they might have a, quite a few providers and, um, you know, and, and spread that kind of access to areas that don't have as much. So we'll be seeing more, um, and we have seen an explosion in telehealth for mental health services. And likely, at least that's what we'll be watching is, is to see that continue on as we go forward, especially with this, this great need. Your report also mentions the growing demand for diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare, given the disparities that the pandemic ripped open and other racial trauma. And one sentence that jumped out at me in the report was something about virtual or decentralized clinical trials. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, this is this is one of those those pieces of the pandemic like you said that that really has highlighted longstanding inequities in our system where we saw in almost every metric race uh, sort of play a part in determining how what the outcome would be in terms of hospitalizations, deaths, getting sick, vaccinations now. And so the pandemic has really shown a light on on something on a problem that's been persisting for a really long time. Decentralized clinical trials is, I think, maybe a one positive that might have come out of this. It's not a new idea in terms of like just thought up during the pandemic by any means. There have been plenty of, uh, there's been a lot of thinking around this before, but um, but the pandemic sort of had this explosion in remote and turned off um, the ability for many clinical trials to, to operate in person. And so it really was almost a forcing mechanism for the pharmaceutical industry and all the ancillary um, industries around it that help uh, with clinical trials, a forcing mechanism to say, let's think about how we can do this in a decentralized way. How much can we do remotely with clinical trials? And what that effect of that, one of the effects of that is to make trials more accessible to more people. People who are say, who might think to themselves, I can't take a day off of work to go to a clinical trial, but if I can do pieces of it from home, I'd be happy to participate. And so what happens is, or what, what the hope is, is that this will lead to much more uh, participation in clinical trials by a more diverse population, and that benefits everybody. And we've seen that with the with the vaccine trials, which were much more representative of the population. And we will, um, and we're seeing pharmaceutical companies much more interested in trying to make this happen, so that it is easier for people to participate in these trials. And by doing that ensure that the trial data apply to, to all the population as a whole and that we understand really clearly how different populations are affected by a drug differently, which we know is true. Um, so yeah, so this is one of the pieces that um, I think we will again be watching from HRI standpoint that we're seeing the industry really interested in doing. We're seeing regulators interested in it in making sure that there's more diversity in uh, clinical trials. And so I think this will be kind of the pandemic being kind of a forcing mechanism should push some or likely will push some change in this area that many people think is greatly needed. 
I've been thinking about this topic a lot the past year, which is why I asked about it, because about once a month, sometimes more often, I accompany a family member in to a clinical trial and everyone there looks like me, looks like you, mm-hmm. you know, we're both white and I'm lucky enough, my employer, you know, I take my computer there and I sit there and I work while they do their thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not at most people in this country can't do that. So that's, that's right. That's, been on that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it really shuts off the trials for a lot of folks who, who just cannot, like you said, cannot participate. And, and the, the way that, that the, the, the breakdown there is that you don't get data on everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the assumption, we now really understand that the assumption that if you just look at one group, it's applicable to everybody. We know that 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 that's not accurate, and so it's important. And so we'll we'll see. You know, I think going forward, um, decentralized clinical trials will open it up to more folks. So we'll we'll be watching that. But I there's a lot of talk in the industry around that. What other lessons are healthcare systems and others in the industry taking away from this um, as they look ahead to the? next pandemic. I think the report talks about the supply chain and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yes. So I think we all remember um, last spring when the call went out from almost every hospital for more PPE. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And not just masks and gloves and gowns, but like even things like, I remember reading about the need for bleach and toilet paper and all of these different pieces in the hospitals. And so so the supply chain shortages that were so evident during the pandemic, especially early pandemic, really brought to the forefront for, for folks who are running hospitals, the need to think through the supply chain and have a better way to forecast what's needed, have um, sort of scenario planning done so they understand if this kind of thing happens again. And it's not just a pandemic, it could be a hurricane, it could be a fire, it could be wildfires, and it's all kinds of disruptions that could happen. And so the need for alternate um, sources of, of supplies, the need to be able to plan, even communications between hospitals to set that up so that if one is short of something, maybe they can, um, you know, work with a co- like a consortium to, to share the supplies. These kinds of lanes of communication were set up during the pandemic, and we think that will continue forward. So the supply chain has really come to the fore. The reason it's in our report about medical cost trend is that investments are being thought about and made right now in this by providers. And so that cost is being baked into the system. And so we see those investments being made in forecasting and and these, you know, this thinking through of the supply chain. Similarly, we see investments in the sort of digital end of things between uh, providers and patients, because every, you know, how many of us went online over the last year to talk to our doctor or, a or our, um, you know, nurse practitioner. And so that digital front door, as it's called, there's a lot of investment being done in that because now the need, we're all knocking on that digital front door. And so 
there's a, a need to, there's a sort of an acknowledgement that that door better be pretty, pretty good and pretty sophisticated. So that those investments are also being made out of the pandemic. And, and we're seeing more spending around, around that. And I think most of us will see the fruits of that in the coming years. At least that's what our research is showing that, th- that this investment will be sort of seeing what that, what that looks like in coming years. Consumers definitely seem to prefer a lot of those tools because I guess they expect healthcare to be just as easy as anything else that they might be doing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That we started surveying consumers back in, I think I started asking this question like in 2013 and we we would ask consumers a bunch of different scenarios. Like if you could would you be willing to uh, do an at-home strep test if you could? Would you be willing to get um, wound care at a retail pharmacy if you could? Basically, what we did was we took a series of services that are typical from very simple to very sophisticated and moved them all one step closer to the home and said, would you be willing to do it there as opposed to where you usually would get this done? And back in 2013, when we started asking this, the numbers were really pretty high. Consumers were pretty open to it back then. And most of the stuff was hypothetical. Every year since we've asked the same set of situations, same scenarios, every year, the the group and the ages that are interested in this and willing to do these kinds of things closer to the home grows. So not just young people, but but older uh, demographics as well. And, you know, now we saw it during the pandemic, a lot of this come to life where you have uh, because it was, we were all kind of forced to. And so I think consumers want it. The industry is, is, is catching up to where consumers are in some ways. And so that's where some of the spending is coming from, is that sort of developing the infrastructure to do this well and sort of meet consumers where they were, honestly, several years ago. Your report also talks about people going for care outside of the traditional office setting. And that will have an impact, correct? That's right. That's one of our, also one of our, um, of our drivers of medical cross trend. And again, you can tie it to the pandemic where the EDs, you know, the volumes in the emergency departments really fell dramatically in the spring of 2020. And then never really, for many hospitals, never quite recovered. And the reason we believe, and this is a a hypothesis, but we are seeing more and more surveys and studies come out in medical journals and public affairs journals uh, or health health affairs and journals like that talking about this. So our hypothesis is that during that period of time, when the ED was a place where you people worried about going because there might be a lot of COVID there, they found other ways to get care and there were lower cost ways to get care. And once those channels, those, those sort of pathways are built and people find that they work and they know where to go, they kind of know the, the, the um, kinds of, of um, problems to bring to each, right? You don't, you don't go to the, the retail clinic necessarily with a heart attack, right? So people start to figure out, you know, what kinds of problems to bring where, and people were kind of forced to figure that out during the pandemic. So this is our hypothesis that that they started to go to these other lower cost sites of care. And in some cases, um, forego going anywhere. Now that could be a good thing or a bad thing. In some cases, there is 
plenty of care that you don't need. Probably just waiting and watching is probably just fine. There's also a lot of conditions that you do need to go. And so all of this will be kind of sifted through by researchers looking back. But indeed, we think that one of the drivers of medical cost trend, one of the deflators will be lower cost sites of care sort of absorbing like a sponge some of this ED volume that we have not seen return to the EDs in many cases. Um, so that'll be, I think, something to that we'll be watching over the coming years is what does that mean? Does that, is some of this care that's going to lower cost sites, should it go to the ED? Should it have gone to ED? And are we going to see higher acuity issues down the road for folks that maybe should have gone to emergency, like a, like a cardiac issue? Or will we see just a lower, lower spend because, because of um, people choosing more appropriate venues to get to get their care. So I think this is a really interesting thing to watch also kind of a forcing mechanism during the during the pandemic when people really had to kind of scramble and figure out, okay, I'm not going to go to the ED, but where do I go? Do I just call my doctor on on, you know, the new telehealth app that they just sent me? Um, you know, and in a lot of cases, it appears that's probably was just fine. And that's certainly less expensive than a trip to the emergency department. Is there anything else I forgot to ask or that you want to mention? No, other than I think, um, you know, if you look at the history of medical cost trend that we've been projecting since I think like two, you know, 16 years, if you look at 2007, you had double digit medical cost trend and it really fell um, year after year until it kind of settled out around 2016, 2017, around five and a half, six percent a year and then we've had the pandemic i think the pandemic everyone was kind of scratching their heads back in 2020 what's it going to be what what is what is the impact on medical cost trend going to be and so i think interestingly we're seeing 2021 being kind of a, a high point in this in these pandemic years and then it coming down a little bit in 2022 and so I think the, for me, the interesting question is where does it settle after 2022? Does it settle back where it was around five and a half, six and a half, or are we headed down even further due to the changes that are being made right now in the way we all access care? I think that's a big open question, but that's one of the questions that we're asking ourselves and watching going forward. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Managed Carecast. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For all of us at AGMC, thanks for listening. For more about this issue, visit agmc.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at agmc.com or follow us on Twitter at agmc underscore journal. And if you like Managed Carecast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 